giving this talk at the beginning of this program is some, I'm not quite sure whether I should be voting myself to the end or keeping pole position at the beginning because it's slightly odd that to be giving them one of the first lectures about introducing new vaccines. You'd almost think, you know, you'd do all the T cells and all those boring B cells and, you know, all that stuff and then get to introducing new vaccines at the very end of the course. Um, but I got promoted to the first day, so maybe I should just live with it. Um, but I will promise you there are no antibodies in this talk. It'll be extraordinarily disappointing to any immunologist, but there'll be no antibodies, no B cells, no T cells, I don't think anyway, uh, nothing of that nature. Um, this first slide, in a way, could be the whole of this talk. And I almost don't need to show, maybe I should try that sometime, any other material. Um, here you've got a disease which in fact had, I'll show you the background data shortly, but had been increasing. You introduce a vaccine which has been made specifically for the purpose, the disease in the target age disappears and stays disappeared, and you also see those who are not vaccinated, this group is over 20, they were not part of the vaccination program, and you see people who were not vaccinated and the disease disappears in them as well. And this speaks to many aspects of the power of vaccines. It speaks about the direct effect, that's this. It speaks about the indirect effect, and that's that. It speaks about the cost effectiveness. It speaks about the efficacy of the campaign, the efficiency of getting the job done, and so on. So it's all there. And I will come back to this example. But I'm going to take you through some background stuff that you will probably think is really dumb. But I will also try to show you some examples about why it's not quite so dumb. And uh, it uh, is part of our consideration whenever we are thinking about introducing new vaccines. And the first thing, where does the pressure come from to introduce new vaccines? Why do we do it at all? Well, it comes from a number of different places. International institutions, the World Health Organization, Gavi, UNICEF, the Gates Foundation, may all be putting pressure to get new vaccines into use because there is a burden which can be global, it can be regional, it can be national, it can be subnational, where there is a disease for which vaccination is likely to be uh, an effective intervention. So you've got international institutions, you can have national authorities, uh, that's government organizations acting on behalf of their own communities. You can have interest groups. So for example, in this country, there has been a very powerful lobby from families of women who suffered from cervical cancer, not only to improve screening for cervical cancer, but to have prevention of cervical cancer through vaccination. And so this is a lobby group. It's, it's very much a community-based uh, interest group focused around a specific disease and able to be influential in, in changing priorities. Professional organizations, so doctors groups, pediatricians groups, public health groups, the public at large. We have got considerable experience in this country where the public feared meningitis and so the public became a force for pressure to get vaccine against meningococcal disease 
introduced as quickly as possible. The same phenomenon has been happening in the meningitis belt of sub-Saharan Africa, where epidemic meningococcal disease is something that causes great public uh, anxiety, and the public becomes a force uh, for change. And then behind all of that are the opinion formers uh, who influence the public. And many of those in, uh, uh, opinion formers come from very diverse uh, communities. There are the individuals who believe that they have got a mission to do something. There are the journalists who believe that it is their role to form public opinion through to all sorts of interest groups, as I've said, individual politicians, and so on. So a very wide range of people who want vaccines introduced. So what are the constraints on introducing new vaccines? Well, it, it's not quite so straightforward. The first is you think that your own priorities are more important than anybody else's. And that will only work if you are able to influence prioritization. So Adrian, no doubt, has got some ideas of what the world's most needed vaccines are. But unless he is eloquent, or I am eloquent, and able to influence and justify that influence, our priorities will not necessarily be seen seriously. So our priorities have to be sustainable and they have to be right. Operating against us in a realistic environment is resource limitation. And that occurs at all levels. It occurs at the biotechnology level where people can't get money through to industry where choices are made on where profit will come most quickly from through to governments that will have to look across a range of priorities and they will make judgments about votes and about expenditure and about budgets and about what treasuries will permit and so on. So resource limitation is a reality. It is much easier to get resources in the curative services than it is in the preventative services. I tell you that from long experience. And it is far easier to get money that will treat somebody than will prevent disease. We have to justify our resources in a much more demanding way than people in curative services have to justify their resources. I'll come on to that in a minute. And there is competition because everybody wants resources and therefore you have to be able to demonstrate why your priority is more important than someone else's priority. And there may be a lack of receptivity at local level for what is seen as global or regional or national problems. With the devolution of health that happens increasingly now to local level, where decision making is at local level, what is seen as a global problem is not seen as a local problem. And so resource allocation at local level goes to what people see as their local problems, and they're not interested in national, regional, or even global use of resources. So there are mismatches between what we want to see as priorities and what may be the constraints that apply to new vaccines. So in trying to bring our vaccine strategy together, we start with a long list of questions. And I've just thrown on this some of the questions that we have to answer. Who's going to develop the vaccine? How much is it going to cost? How will they develop it? When will they develop it? 
Why will they develop it? Where is it going to be done? Where's the money? Will it work? Why shouldn't we do it? And is it worth it? And through the course of this talk, I'm going to pick up quite a lot of those. And so by the time we get to the end, you'll have an idea of how we have to try to answer most of those. So a few more core questions. And we've got to have answers to these. Is there a need? Now, I said Adrian may have his vision of what he thinks the world needs. And I may have a completely different vision of what I think this country might need. Or if I'm working in a global way, I may have a very different vision. So we've got to be able to demonstrate that there is indeed a need. And having demonstrated that, is there a vaccine? Easy example. Respiratory syncytial virus. Is there a need? Absolutely. We could produce data over and over about the burden of RSV. Is there a vaccine? Well, we've been trying and trying, and we are still a considerable distance away from knowing how to answer that. So there's no point getting ready to introduce an RSV vaccine when the science is telling us it's actually going to be quite a long time still. And if there is a vaccine, we've got to be able to show that it's safe and effective. And so therefore, we have to have those answers before we can go out. We may have great enthusiasm about this wonderful product, but if we can't tell people that it's safe and effective, why should they take it? We've got to decide who should receive a vaccine. Just because you've got a vaccine doesn't mean you give it to absolutely everybody. There's going to be some hierarchy of who should be prioritized. I showed you that slide on meningococcal group C disease. We identified the highest risk populations and vaccinated them first because of the availability of supply of vaccine. So we chose on an age-based basis who should be vaccinated as the vaccine was being produced by the uh, companies. And we stuck to it. We only vaccinated children of this age, this month, this age, this month, this age, this month. On a Monday afternoon, because I remember it well, a father phoned me up. And he said that he had two boys, and one of them was aged 15, and the other was aged 11. And the 15-year-old, because he was in the first tranche to be vaccinated, because they were pretty much the highest risk group for meningococcal C disease, had been vaccinated in school, and he was really pleased about it. And his second son had died because he was in the lower risk group and as the vaccine was being rolled out, he was not yet eligible. So those are the consequences of our decisions. And that's why we have to work on an evidence base. So who should receive vaccine is not easy and has to be right. And we always have to answer this question, for us anyway, would it be a good use of public funds? Now that's, that's a question that's very real for me in the program here. It's not necessarily something that's taken so seriously in programs where private money is used uh, to buy vaccines. If a program is driven essentially with private money, then people will pay what they think it's worth 
to have a vaccine. But that's not my problem. So what do we need to know? And you're going to see examples of a whole lot of this as we go on. You need to know about the epidemiology of disease, the morbidity, the mortality, the age of the affected population. You need to think about projections for future disease burden, and that requires a great deal of uh, ability to do complex mathematical modeling. You need to know about the clinical management of the disease and the primary care implications and the secondary and tertiary care implications because you're going to have to cost it all. So you need to know all about the disease, not just about the vaccine, so that you can put together all of those, the long-term complications of the disease and the health requirements of the survivors, and so that you can put the economic burden all together and come up with the uh, requirements to do some form of economic analysis to show that this is good use of money. So let's just look at the meningococcal example again. Now, here is the, the background. This is group B meningococcal disease, and you can see that over the period of time through the 1990s, it was indeed increasing. But group C disease was increasing at the same or even higher rate during that period of time. Not so many cases, but a very significant, significant increase. Now, back here, we had already got data about the effectiveness of conjugate vaccines based on Haemophilus influenza B. And we also knew that it, all the efforts that had been put into making group B vaccines had so far not been successful. And we then chose to invest in R&D at this point without an, an increase in group C disease. We chose to invest in group C vaccines. And the reason was that we knew that there was a new clone of group C that was appearing in Europe and, we, and in Canada, and we reckoned it was only a matter of time before it came here, and therefore we wanted to be ready. And so at this point, we started to work on the development of group C conjugate vaccine, and by this time, we had the whole thing solved with enough to run a full national campaign. Probably the fastest vaccine development and campaign uh, that there's been. Uh, so it can be done, and weren't, I suppose we were lucky in starting when we did so that we were ahead of the, the, the problem. So at that point in 1993-94, was there a vaccine? The answer is no. So what did we do? We worked with manufacturers so that we could get a vaccine produced on the basis that we would collaborate with them on the phase two studies so that they would do the work that they needed for licensing and we would do the work for getting all of the policy answered and we would help them generate high quality data that would be usable for getting their vaccine licensed. We already had a vaccine evaluation consortium in place. We changed its priorities so that we focused the work on uh, group C vaccines. We put more money into the consortium to accelerate the research and we identified the questions that we wanted to have answered that would be different to the manufacturer's interests so that we could have everything ready when the vaccine was ready. We knew people would ask us, what happens if you give this vaccine at the same time as another vaccine? So we did the studies so that we could get those answers. Not necessary for the manufacturers to do, but we needed it for the policy. So why did we invest? 
to accelerate the availability of a much-needed vaccine, to answer policy-related questions that the manufacturers wouldn't necessarily address, to hasten the process of getting licenses through high-quality data, and to be able to evaluate the vaccine effects in the circumstances similar to routine use, which, again, the manufacturers wouldn't do. We knew if we went in and vaccinated in schools, which we did, kids would faint and that people would say, how often do they faint? We knew that the day after the vaccination, they would all be on their phones to each other. How do you feel? Oh, I've got a headache. Oh, I have too, so let's not go to school. So that we could answer all of the questions about the, uh, the uh, acceptability of the program and what were likely to be the sort of common adverse events uh, that would occur. And so we funded and did all those sorts of things. Now, here's another example of where, actually, things didn't work. This is meningococcal disease in the United States. And here it was, chuntering along here. And around this time, there was a lot of discussion and, indeed, encouragement of the manufacturers to develop conjugate vaccines suitable to give to infants. They already had done a lot of work on conjugate vaccines for adolescents, despite actually a relatively low burden of disease. But now the manufacturers were encouraged to make vaccines for infants and young children and go through the clinical trials that were going to be necessary uh, to get those products licensed. This is looking at the cost per quality adjusted life year. And since the vaccines didn't exist, some sort of sensitivity analysis had to be done on different vaccine costs. If the vaccine was going to cost as low as $15 a dose, which was highly unlikely, it was going to cost $300,000 per quality adjusted life year. $300,000 per quality adjusted life year. Our threshold that we are allowed to go up to per quality is $45,000. So if an intervention is going to cost us more than $45,000, £30,000 per quality, we can't fund it. So here we are tenfold almost higher. And that's at a highly unrealistic price for the vaccine. If the vaccine was going to cost $60 a dose, which against other US vaccines was not far, you know, probable, that's a million dollars per quality. And if it went up to $90 a dose, well, it's one and a half million dollars per quality adjusted life year. So what happened? The committee that was asked to advise on it said, we do not recommend it. So what is the consequence of that? Well, the consequence is you've now got companies that have invested a great deal of money to develop vaccines against what they thought was going to be a market, and there isn't a market. So go back to some of my early questions that I said posed to you. Is there a vaccine? Is there a need? Are the resources there? These are really important questions, and we have to get them right, because you get them wrong, 
and you have really significant problems on your hands. How do you get money? Well, you have to have some form of cost-benefit analysis to, nowadays to show that this is good use of money. We have to be able to show that our interventions come in at less than £30,000 per quality because if they don't, the money could be better used for other health interventions. That's the yardstick. Other parts of health could, get, could do better with the money if it's going to be more than £30,000 per quality. You've got to show that there are operational advantages. It's got to be worth doing, and it's got to be reasonably easy to do. There's got to be some urgency, otherwise things just don't happen. There's got to be public health concern. Someone's got to be making a noise or things won't happen. There's got to be public and political pressure. This is really important. Advocacy coming from all directions influences decision-making, and it gets you money. And there's got to be a political dimension, because if the government has no interest, they're not going to spend the money. If the government's priority is stopping cancer, they've gone out and put it in their manifesto. So they're going to find it difficult to say, well, we're not going to spend the money on that. We're going to spend it on something else. So there are political dimensions to all of this. So what did we have to do for meningococcal C vaccine? We had to have, you, if you think that you bid for money and you just get you know, a bucket of money, it's not like that. We had to bid for at least four separate budget lines. We had to bid for vaccine purchase, for the advertising and promotion and education part of the program, for the service delivery. Now that meant we had to have money to pay GPs and money to pay for the school program, and we had to have money for the implementation. Now that's at least four separate budget lines, each of which requires you to negotiate with a separate group of people, because you don't just go to one, you don't go to the bank of the Department of Health and say, Here's, my, here's a check, because the money is already very fragmented. So you've got to work against that background, and there is no guarantee that you will actually get what you need from all of your money sources. So you've got to be good at getting money. So just putting all of that together so far, and I'll end on a note very similar to this, what do you need to do? You need to have vaccine studies. You need to be able to select your products. You've got to have surveillance. You need to be able to monitor for adverse events. You've got to be able to supply the product. And you've got to be able to supply it every day of the year when people want it. Shortages are not a good thing. You've got to be able to have some form of programming so that people know when they're going to be vaccinated. You've got to be able to measure what you've done. You need resources. You've got to have a communication strategy. You need training materials. You've got to be able to assess how good the vaccine is. So you've got to have a different surveillance system for the disease. You've also got to be able to look for vaccine failures. And you need to be able to do some form of impact assessment. You will have all of this printed out for you later. So let's just look at some of the communication issues. Now, here are two completely different sets of circumstances. Here, and this is a very old and sadly faded piece from video, of the introduction of Haemophilus influenza B vaccine back in 1992. At that time, the public hadn't got a clue what Haemophilus influenza, most health professionals 
didn't know what Haemophilus influenza B was. I mean, you may think that I'm, I'm being derogatory. They didn't. They had not got a clue. They knew meningitis. Pediatricians knew epiglottitis. But this organism as a disease was unknown amongst health professionals and indeed parents. By the time we were doing the Men C campaign, there was huge awareness of meningococcal disease. And particularly group C disease, everybody knew about it. The problem here was an unknown disease where we had to raise awareness. The problem here was a greatly feared disease where we did not have unending quantities of vaccine. We were getting vaccine as fast as it could be produced and using it, but supply was critically difficult. So what we have to do here is manage expectations between demand and supplies. They're quite different. So let's just see, if hopefully these will run, uh, what happened. We couldn't show children with those infections and with those symptoms and signs. But by distancing it, by using dolls, you could actually show the seriousness and even show the concept of a child dying. And people immediately saw the toy box and the black screen and realized the seriousness of it all. So this was a very effective piece of communication. So that was raising awareness. Now let's look at a, a very different example, and this is managing demand. Perhaps after the talk, if there's time, I'll tell you some of the background to this. Um. Every parent knows just how serious meningitis can be. Now there's a new vaccine to protect our children against meningitis C, and will be available to everyone under the age of 18. All the teenagers are already being immunized, and appointments for young babies are going out now. Your doctor or school will get in touch, so you don't need to do anything. There are over 14 million people to be immunized by the end of next year. That's a huge program which can only work if everybody waits their turn. If you'd like more information, then you can pick up this leaflet at chemists, supermarkets, and doctor's surgery, or just call this number. Thank you. The British are very good at queuing. Um, but do you see how totally different these two advertisements are? One of them is telling you about a disease you don't know about. The other is saying, we know you know about this disease. Now, here's the problem, and that is managing, managing supply and demand. And so they were uh, two quite different problems, both with the same outcome. There's the introduction of Haemophilus influenza B, vaccine, the disease disappeared. We then had this very interesting resurgence, and we could spend, again, another hour discussing quite why it ever happened. But we in introduced a catch-up campaign. We then introduced a booster, 
and the disease has again gone down to uh, and currently is at historic low levels and you know it's now noise on the x-axis and it's gone down not just in the vaccinated population it's gone down in those who are not vaccinated as well so highly effective I've shown you that meningococcal C disease disappears fantastic here's again another piece of communication and now I'll show you a different way of monitoring uh, the effect. Now, this is the hard copy advertisement that was in newspapers. So the point about this is, always, you know, protect is a terribly powerful word to be using in human communication. Parents want to protect, and you personalize it. It's your child. You don't say protect children. That doesn't work protect your child works. So just these sorts of things. The key things that you want them to see and so on. So <clears throat> let's have a look at the advertisement. Here's some good news about the Childhood Immunization Program. Pneumococcal vaccine is being introduced to help prevent infections from germs that can cause meningitis blood poisoning, pneumonia, and ear infections. All children under two will be invited for the immunization. In the meantime, you don't need to do anything until you're contacted. For more information, pick up a leaflet at your surgeon. Immunization, go further to help protect your child. Right, that's a 30-second advertisement. Okay? So now what you're going to do, we're going to see, is what do people get from it? Because we ask them. We do a huge amount of research on parents' attitudes, their knowledge, why they do what they do, who they trust, and so on. So here they've been asked, after the uh, advert was shown on television, and this is unprompted, what were the main messages that you get, got? And these are, they're not exclusive answers. So a third said, get your child vaccinated. 20% mention of a new vaccine. 10% it's protection and prevention, 10% wait to be contacted, 8% knew that it was for children under two. Pretty good sort of feedback. So now again, unprompted, what did the vaccine protect against? And three quarters have got quite rightly that it was to protect against meningitis. Close to 60% have remembered that it was about blood poisoning and septicemia. Over half knew that it was about pneumonia. 30% it was about ear infections. So the messages that we want them to get from this 30-second ad are working. And then the most important, what are you supposed to do? Three quarters, don't do anything, I will be contacted. Exactly what we want. We didn't want them all rushing as a result of the advertisement to go and get the vaccine because the facilities were not set up for everybody to be able to do that. So three quarters knew that they should do nothing. 10% were contacting for more information, fine. Get a leaflet, fine. Make an appointment, only 4% got that wrong message uh, and 2% said you could go to the website. So we track not just who gets vaccinated, but what do you think about vaccination? What do you know? How does our communication work? Let's turn to a different vaccine, human papillomavirus vaccine. 
completely different sort of considerations. What did we have to think about? We had to think about the choice of the vaccine. There were two vaccines, quite different vaccines being uh, brought to us. The age of vaccination is really important. We know that the younger you vaccinate, the better the immune response. Vaccinate girls at nine, you get a better response than vaccinating women at 18, for instance. So the younger age does get a much better immune response. So the age has got a lot of issues about this. Would we vaccinate girls or girls and boys? I mean, this is a sexually transmitted disease and it usually takes two. Uh, and therefore, would it be worth vaccinating both sexes? Would we do a catch-up campaign and what extent of catch-up campaign? Would we vaccinate in schools or would we do our vaccination through primary care? What would be the acceptability to parents and to young people and what were the issues that were going to make this program acceptable to them? Well, we need to show that this is cost effective. And so the key paper is this one by uh, Mark Jitt and colleagues from the Health Protection Agency and it's in the British Medical Journal uh, and again you'll have the reference uh, in your papers. Now this doesn't show terribly clearly but the bit I want you to concentrate on is you can see here this grey box, can't you? Yes? Reasonably? Right, well there is a grey box there and that is the 20 to 30,000 pound per quality adjusted life year threshold. So anything that's going to be above 30,000 pounds per quality is not going to be uh, affordable. We want to be below that line there uh, to be affordable. And these are curves of the cost per quality and the percentage that is likely to be cost effective. Now let me translate it for you. The blue thick line is if you vaccinated girls at age 12 and you got 10 years protection. If you vaccinated at 13, 10 years protection. 14, 10 years protection. Now, if you vaccinated girls at 12, you've got this probability that it will be cost effective at £30,000 per quality. If you vaccinated them older and older, you would increase the probability of it being cost effective. But you're still, at best, only up at 75%. So that means that you've got a 3 to 1 probability of it being cost effective. If you, this is the intermediate 20-year uh, protection against cervical cancer, and green is lifelong. So, with lifelong protection, it really doesn't matter at what age you vaccinate because there's no difference between these curves. And you've got almost a 100% probability that it is cost-effective below our £30,000 per quality uh, threshold. So, this is telling us that with lifelong protection, we've got extraordinarily high probability that this is cost-effective. If we only have 20 years, we're up at 90% probability that it's going to be cost-effective. So this is telling us that this is going to be really good use of money. 
But it was complicated because there were two vaccines. One prevented against cervical cancer, the other against cervical cancer and genital warts. So we needed to work out what was the, pro what was the value of a wart. Because if we knew what the value of, of a wart was, we would be able to tell how much price difference we should pay to be good use of money. And this is a similar sort of analysis, but it's just done as a table rather than graphs. And if we just take this bit here, if the vaccine protects for 20 years and we just vaccinated at age 12, the difference in price has got to be around £17. If the difference in price is less than £17, it's good value for money to protect against genital warts. If the difference in price between the vaccines was more than £17, you'd get better value using your money for something else. And that's what happened. But that's just looking at a fairly limited part of how we do cost-effectiveness. When we do our contracting, we score a great many different attributes of vaccines always against the cost-effectiveness output. So here we've Score, we're scoring how many points you can get for protecting against cancer caused by HPV 16 and 18. And here, the duration, we're giving you more points if you can show a high probability that it'll be more than 10 years. You get fewer points for protection against warts because the cost of the disease is much less than it is for cervical cancer. 10-year protection gets you another 500 points. And then cross-protection against strains that are not in the vaccine gets you another 1,000 points, other clinical benefits. And then, of course, we factor in the price that the manufacturer offers us. And there's more than that. We want to look at the formulation, the presentation, the shelf life, flexibility in the, in the scheduling, because that saves us money. Now, we said to the companies... We want thermostability data because we get telephone calls on a Monday morning or even worse on a Tuesday morning to say that someone pulled the plug out on the fridge on Friday evening and it's a bank holiday weekend and have we got to throw the vaccine away. And if it's an expensive vaccine, we'd prefer to say no. But you can only do that with data on thermostability. So we gave points for the thermostability data. And the first company said, we'll give you 72 hours of thermostability data. And the second company said, you could put this vaccine in your pocket for a month and it would still be fully stable. So who do you suppose got the points? So we can score every attribute of the program and assign a monetary value to it. Next question we had to resolve was, do we vaccinate in school or in primary care? We do school-based programs in this country. We vaccinate routinely. We've got a long history of vaccinating in schools, and we can show that we do it very well. Here is the data from our meningitis C campaign. When we vaccinated in schools, here are the ages we vaccinated in school. And up in, in primary school, we get extremely high coverage even with an injected vaccine, in school. As soon as they go into secondary school, it becomes much more difficult because class structures are different. They're in school, they're out of school, they're out on trips, they're out 
tripping. There. And of course, for HPV, they're out swapping viruses. Uh, so once you get into secondary school and certainly getting into the, well into the years in secondary school, it's much more difficult. So this influenced our HPV program where we thought we would try to go for the last part of primary school where we know we get high uptake uh, and we know the vaccine is very immunogenic. So we started to ask what people thought. And here we've asked the mothers of, or parents of eight to 10 year old children, we did this in 2005, they were very positive about vaccination. They said it's an important responsibility. It's the mothers that make the decisions. The fathers make the noise and the mothers make the decisions. Um, there is a perception that vaccination carries risks and that's all to do with the unknown nature of, what are, of vaccines. People just don't know what they are. They're something that you have and they can do amazing things, um, but they do protect children. Parents feel that it is their responsibility to protect their children. The MMR controversy made things more difficult. And they told us that they thought their children to be vaccinated against HPV were too young in primary school because they didn't want to have a discussion with them about a sexually transmitted disease. And they didn't think that their children in primary school were old enough to have that discussion. So we did the same thing with parents of 11 to 12 year olds and we asked the kids themselves. Points that came up, vaccine safety, could it damage girls' uh, fertility? Would it be a license to engage in underage and unprotected sex? In our country, children, anyone can give consent. As long as you understand the implications of giving and withholding consent, you can give consent. You don't have to be any age. And parents didn't really like that. And they agreed that there should be a catch-up program up to age 18. We asked the girls. They didn't like the idea of an injection. They didn't know where they were going to get the injection. And if you think about that, it just shows you some of the confusions. The girls were in favor of it and that they thought their parents would be in favor of it. The health professionals just said, as long as there's enough money put into the program, we'll do it. But don't ask us to do it without it being adequately funded. So what's the background? We learned that the full HPV story, it stops cancer, it stops warts, it stops sexually transmitted infection, confuses people. And that's part of what's gone wrong in the US. The program has failed in the US. The coverage of HPV vaccine third dose in the US is 35%. That is shameful. But partly it's because the messaging was wrong from the beginning. For us, it's the cervical cancer story. A vaccine that stops women getting cervical cancer is extraordinarily powerful. If you start to go into that HPV is an STI and it protects against cancer, it just gets too complicated. It, the vaccine needed to be routine. It needed to be something that people had just like everything else. And when you ask parents, they protect their children against disease, not against viruses. And so having a long debate about the viruses was unhelpful. They wanted to know about the disease, and the disease was cancer. And that has a great deal of value. So let's just have a look at some of the leaflets that we prepared in advance. Now, these are trial leaflets that we then go out to public testing. Okay, you've looked at them. Anyone want to vote for one, two, 
three, four, five, six. Anyone vote for one? None of you like one. Anyone vote for two? Nobody likes two. Anyone vote for number three? You're reserving your, your votes. <laughs> four. Oh, yep, bit of interest in one, two, three, four, for four. Five. No? Six. You've got to vote for something. Oh, okay. So what did they say? Uh, no, that was too like keep fit. She's too old. Actually, she wasn't. Because obviously we used a girl who was the right age, but they thought she looked too old. This, too sexy. This one, too knowing. Too? Knowing. She was just too, you know, controlled and aware of herself. This one, too much like a girl guide, they said. And this one, they hated it. They said, you must be joking. If that's what you think, the way that parent, the mothers and their daughters communicate, get real. Hated it. So, one, two, three. One, one, two, Right, two, three. Well, it was, th well, you, because you've been exposed to it. <laughs> three, it was this sort of format. It was this sort of font. You'll see how this turns into an advertising campaign. But we pre-test. The point I'm getting across to you is that we don't use our prejudices to what we think parents and young people will like. We go and ask them, because it is so easy to get it wrong. So you need a website, so all of our web material. Now, the point about all of this is, look how consistent it all is. It's all using the same colors, the same logos, the same fonts, and so wherever you get information, and you could, for instance, go here and put in your date of birth, and it would tell you when you would get your HPV vaccine. So all of this is consistent. Arm Against Cervical Cancer was the logo. Arms together, interlocked, to show corporateness. Arm Against Cervical Cancer because it's a play on words about the arm. The logo, all of it, look how it's all to do with arms. So there's a theme running through it. Arm Against Cervical Cancer, and it's about cancer, the, the font was what young people wanted. Where couldn't we use this? We couldn't use it in Northern Ireland because they said we can't use any sort of language about arming yourself. <laughs> so you learn. And they had a different logo. But what I want you to see is the consistency. Here are advertisements from newspapers at the very beginning. Your daughter is armed for life. 
and it's the arm that's the focus. Again, you couldn't walk down a street without seeing these sorts of images. All consistent, all tested, all, all powerful. You probably have never been onto, well, I hope you haven't, a chat room aged, uh, aimed at 12-year-old girls. You better not have been. But this is a chat room aimed for 12-year-old girls that we set up. Here's our cervical cancer logo, our HPV, and we staffed it so that when you went online and put in your questions, we had trained people who were answering your questions. So why did we do it? Well, this is called Habbo Hotel. We knew that it had a quarter of a million girls, aged 12 to 13, who used it. Absolutely our target group. We put on uh, weekly chat sessions where we ran the chat sessions. We gave them uh, a poll that they could do. If they uh, completed one of the questionnaires, uh, they got a badge. They could walk around and meet people in there who would talk to them about the vaccine on the screen. There was advertisement material supporting it. And we drove you to find out more as you went around the site. And there were games and so on they could do. And it got a lot of, uh, of, uh, of users. Now, here's the television advertisement that we ran. Remember, this is all about the arm. Okay? Remember that the whole of this program is about an arm. We're introducing the HPV vaccine against cervical cancer to all girls in school year 8. Arm against cervical cancer. Right, now what happened when we showed that ad? We got sued. We got sued. Now, anyone want to guess why we got sued? Well, what does that uh, sound like? Well, the answer is it sounds like every other bit of soundtrack that young people listen to. And so a young girl got her lawyers to sue us because she said we had pinched her soundtrack from a uh, CD that she had just issued. And we had to go to music lawyers to show that the music sequences were different, the chord sequences were different, the words were different, and that we had actually commissioned this before she had laid down her track and the lawyers uh, resolved it in our favor. But the point about all this is that it did sound like all of the other music that they listened to, and that's what made it effective. So did the TV ad get any attention? So how do you find out? Well, I've shown you some of the ways. So you go on YouTube, and you find 
what has happened on YouTube. We didn't post it on YouTube. Someone else recorded it and posted it on YouTube. And we found that it had been viewed 43,000 times on YouTube and 460 people had put in comments. And here are some of the comments. And I make no apology, well I should apologize really, for the quality of the grammar. Who sings this song? Please tell me, love it. How good is the beat to this song? I love it. Been in my head all week. Who sings this? It's amazing. Please, 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 please tell me. Every time this advert is on, I always crank up the volume. I think this is a bit of a piss take that only year eight girls are getting it. What about the rest of the girls? The years ab above get it next year, smart ass. So in other words, the first one hasn't followed any of the information to find out what, what's going to happen for the older girls. And the second one knows that the older girls are going to get the vaccine in the catch-up program. But you can do epidemiology with YouTube if you want. And here, it shows you how many times it's viewed on YouTube over time. And of course, when the advert isn't being shown, it all goes flat. And then a year later, we run the ad again, and there's more interest. 718 people commented. It was the favorite for 277. 119 gave it ratings, and the rating was 4.57 out of a maximum of five points. You can break down who was watching it and who was uh, commenting on it. It was girls in the target age group and the older girls and indeed their mothers. And where was it being watched? Well, not surprisingly, only where it was being shown. So this is the sort of data you can generate from these sorts of, of uh, uh, new materials for communication. Did it all work? Now, this is looking at the very first year of the program. This is the very first year's data. And what we've done is we've broken down the uh, different localities, and we've started in the highest achievers. And you've got the number of girls in each cohort here. So there are 127 girls in the uh, first cohort in this locality, first dose, of whom sorry, 1,267, of whom 1,259, 99.4% of them had their first dose. 98.3 of them had their second dose, 97.9 of them had their third dose. And we've ranked these, these are of course the highest achievers, you know, the list goes way down. Uh, but the point about this is that these are not the most desirable places in the country. This is nothing to do with if you live in a nice place, your girl gets vaccinated. This is inner city deprived London. Sandwell is in the uh, West Midlands and has a great deal of deprivation. Oldham, Dudley, Rotherham, Gateshead, Wakefield, Hull, Liverpool. These are uh, are not easy places. And these are places with a great deal of, of multi-ethnic communities. And so considerations that this vaccine would only be accepted 
in Surrey, in white, wealthy families was completely wrong. This was accepted everywhere because it was a vaccine to stop women getting cancer. And that's the issue, and that's what worked. So let's just look at a sort of dynamic of all of this. Now what you're going to see, <clears throat> months of the year, starting in September, because that's when we give the first dose at the beginning of the school year, percentage coverage. Now that's the first dose for the very first cohort of girls. So here, during this part of this uh, first term of the year, they're being vaccinated with their first dose. There's a bit of catch-up going on. And you'll, you'll always see these kick-ups on the end of these slopes because that's when we can go back a year later and vaccinate any that don't get vaccinated as part of the next year program in school. So we're up to pretty close to 90% coverage first dose for the very first cohort to be vaccinated. There's the second dose and second dose. What this is telling you is just the interval between first and second doses. So here's the second dose and going well up into the high 80s for the second dose. And there's the third dose for this same very first cohort of girls, 84 point something uh, percent coverage. So that's the very first year, first dose. There's the first dose of the second year, not doing quite so well. Second dose, second year, again, not doing quite so well, and third dose. Now, why did we not do so well that year? There's a number of reasons. And the two big reasons are that there was the influenza pandemic here, and therefore there was a great deal of school absenteeism, and it was difficult. And the other reason is that in this year, this second year, this one here, we were doing all of the other catch-up cohorts. So we were vaccinating four more cohorts of girls during, at the same time. So this was an enormous undertaking to be going into school and vaccinating all the girls from 12 up to 17 at the same time. And so that did impact on the coverage. Here's the third year, and there's the first dose coverage. Second dose coverage, right back up here again. Third dose coverage, well up into the 80s. And therefore, we're back on track uh, with extremely high coverage. At this level of coverage, it's not cost effective to vaccinate males. You don't need to do it. And all you do is vaccinate boys who are going to be meeting immune girls. So you don't need to do it. The US program is operating down here, where uh, there are really some important questions to ask about why the program has failed. So here's the last slide. What do we need to put together? It's going back to the beginning, but just bringing it all together for you. We need to know about epidemiology, and we need to know before and after. We must be able to do cost-effectiveness analysis, and we have to be able to model the impacts that we expect so we can select the most cost-effective strategies. We need to be able to train our health professionals, ideally with just one set of materials so that everybody is learning the same things. We need to know about public attitudes, about their knowledge and acceptability. We need to do communications research, including pre-testing of advertising materials. 
The one thing we never do is get children to design posters. The numbers of times I go to places and they've got a poster, they've had a school competition and they've got a poster developed from a school. Children don't advertise BMWs. So why should they advertise vaccines? Why do we think that what children have put in a poster is going to influence parental decision making? The whole thing is much more sophisticated. So we need to do good communications, we need to develop communication materials, television, radio, leaflets, newspapers. Increasingly now, social networking and the internet. We need to track what we've done, we need to evaluate our communication, and we need to measure the impact. So that's your checklist for how to introduce a new vaccine.